And we'll dismiss our kids to the back with Lee. Some of you have asked about Patsy this morning. She's at home with Shelby. Shelby fell Friday night running down a hill at the youth camp she was on and splattered her knee. And uh, so they did, they stitched her up Friday night and then left a bunch of stuff in there. So they had to go back in yesterday and uh, clean everything out. And so that wound up to be full-blown surgery. And uh, so they're at home this morning together. I'm sure Shelby's eating peanut butter M&Ms by now and everything's okay. Uh <laughs> Yeah, so she just turned 18 this week, and she never dreamed that the first thing she would do as an adult is to sign herself into the hospital for surgery. She did. Uh, But that doesn't change a thing about today. We're still all uh, gathering at our house this afternoon following worship. Um, My son-in-law is there getting everything ready to cook hamburgers and hot dogs, and you're all welcome to come and swim or just sit around the pool or eat or sleep if you can find a place to do that uh whatever you want to do you're welcome at our house today and um if you need directions to get there uh just see me afterwards and i'll make sure you know how to get there it's not too not too hard to find your way that direction in mark chapter 9 there's a lot in mark chapter 9 as uh i hope you've been gleaning some good things from it as we've moved through and maybe has challenged your walk with Christ a little bit or you're thinking about yourself and today if if you're not challenged today then I've done a poor job or you're sound asleep because there's a lot about this passage that has everything to do with uh, how we see the world how we see ourselves and more importantly who we are in Christ and we can either have a me focused attitude about our faith and what we get out of it, or we can have a Jesus-focused faith. And that's really what it comes down to today in this, in this particular passage we're going to look at. And as Mark unfolds this whole episode, um, we begin to see that there's various ways in which we can either choose for all of this to be about me, or we can really choose to do this the way Jesus has shown us how to do it. And I don't mean just by the way he lived. Jesus showed us how to live by the way he went to the cross and by the way he endured the cross and by the way he defeated everything that that dastardly thing represents and how his life today that he shares with us allows for us to imitate, be imitators of Christ, Paul says. And that is exactly what he's calling his disciples to do here in in several different ways. So in Mark chapter 9, we're going to begin with verse 30, and we'll go down to 41. Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee, but he did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, 
The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? I don't think he asked it quite like that. I think he probably said, What were you arguing about along the way? Because if I was leading a group and they were arguing about what they were arguing about, I think I would be a little more forceful than what I read it. And I think sometimes we don't want to think about Jesus being forceful with us. But in this particular instance, he is. What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent. Because on the way, they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. He took a child, had him stand there among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Please. Don't stop him, Jesus said, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterward speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us. And whoever gives a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. So we begin this passage where Jesus, this is the second time in just as many chapters where Jesus has explained to his disciples, there's something coming that you've never heard about before, but it's coming. At least you've never heard about it as plainly as this. And he says that the Son of Man, he says, is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise three days later. Now the Son of Man was a, was a figure in Old Testament teaching. He was the one that was promised by God to come, and he was going to set everything right. If you've ever watched the Clint Eastwood movie, Clint Eastwood, those spaghetti westerns, Clint Eastwood was always the guy that rode into town, and he was going to set everything right. And that's the whole genre of the Clint Eastwood movie. He's there, and he's going to set everything right. Well, the Son of Man comes in Daniel. Daniel sees a vision, and he comes down like a Son of Man, and everything is set right by him, and everybody recognizes that it is he that is setting things right, and ultimately they bow down and worship him. So it's not unusual, and it's not at odds to, to, to appreciate how Jesus used the term Son of Man as the term that he used for himself, almost like his name. 
And he says it here again. This is what's going to happen to the Son of Man. Making a clear connection between what's going to happen to him and who the Son of Man is in the Old Testament. This is the one that they were all looking to. It is who that they knew and believed God would send as the Messiah, the anointed one of God, to take care of his creation, to set right the things of this world, to lift up his people. But they didn't understand a word of it. And you're thinking, well, maybe they couldn't understand it. Well, this is the second time that they've heard this. And neither time have they asked really any questions. Peter decided he would lecture Jesus the first time. And Jesus had to tell him, get behind me, Satan. You don't, have, you don't know what God's doing here because you're not seeking God in it. And then here, the second time, they don't even know what to say. They, they don't understand it, and, and they're actually scared to ask Jesus about it, probably because they don't want to get called the devil again. So they just clam up. But once again, they have failed again to consult God in the matter. And this has become a problem. It's become a real problem. And the reason why they're not so eager to look to God in it is because they're really focused on themselves. While Jesus is teaching them, they're, they're thinking in the back of their minds, which one of us is the best? Okay, Peter, James, John had already been up the mountain, had seen some remarkable things. The other nine had just failed miserably at trying to to exercise a demon from a boy because they had not prayed. And here they are not praying again, instead focused on themselves. What is going to make me great here amongst my brothers and sisters? My brothers, in this case, our sisters in this room. I want you to think about this in this me-focused world that we live in in church and out of church because this drama that we play out with God and our faith in God and our relationship with Christ it plays out in our individual lives but most importantly and more importantly so really is how it plays out in a church because we're the body of Christ Christ chose to breathe his life into the fellowship of believers that would go about uh, doing good and healing people like Jesus did and uh, declaring the good news that God had come near through Christ Jesus and salvation could be had through him. This is the message. It's our message as a church. But if we're behaving like these disciples were behaving and it becomes a perennial part of our life together, the church becomes useless and it withers. Which is about what would happen here if Jesus had not been so loving and so careful to correct them. In a me-focused world, we find out that prayer is forgotten and almost lost, as it was to these folks. In a church, when it all of a sudden becomes about what I need and what I want and what I think should happen, when it becomes about the idea that uh, there's this particular theology or that particular theology, and if we don't agree on that, then uh, we can't move forward as a church, and uh, we're going to convene a group to decide what that's going to mean and then the church can have life. All these kind of things happen over and over again in churches. But how is it happening in our church? And that's what I want to focus on today before we get to this place today.
Are we praying together about our church? There's one time a week, every, every week, for the last year and a half that's been set aside for people to gather and pray with their pastor for their church at 9 a.m. on Sunday morning when everybody should be getting here for Bible study anyway. You know who attends that? Two people. Three counting me. So every Sunday at 9 a.m., what I pray for is a church that will pray for the church, to pray for our life together as a church. That I, I, I even pray that you'll wake up a half hour earlier so you can get here a half hour earlier. I pray that you'll come to Bible study. I pray that you'll come to worship, ready to worship. I pray that you'll bring your Bibles and, and pour over your Bibles so that you'll learn the Word of God. I pray that you'll open your lives to one another so that we can function as the people of God. Instead of people kicking their feet in the dirt, wondering, what, what do I say? What do I do to my Lord? I don't even know what to say when he says that this is who I am and this is what it means. That I will die and I will die for you and I will live for you. And the only way that means anything to you is if I'm all that matters to you. So Jesus teaches them, but their teachings are confusing to them. In this, in this me-focused world that we live in and that we bring inside these walls and do this fellowship, his teachings become confusing. They become unclear. They're actually used to sow seeds of misunderstanding amongst people so that we'll begin to focus on the wrong things instead of the right things, on the minutia of things, instead of the broad bro strokes that Jesus provides us that just calls us to love one another first so that we can love a world that is dying. I don't mean just dying, breathing their last. They're dying in hell. And our me-focused attitude is sending them there. Me-focused attitude creates division among the disciples. All they could think about was who was going to be greater, which means somebody had to be less. If I'm going to be great, you've got to be less. Isn't that right? There's only one champion. He's the greatest. If I'm going to be great, you're going to be less. And we do this in church all the time. I'm, I'm, I'm the more mature Christian. I'm the one that knows more of my Bible. I'm here more. I'm more faithful. If you don't want to be here, that's your problem. I can't stand that attitude. It creates division among the disciples, you and me, in a church. Nobody gets to claim one-upsmanship at all. There was only one that is great in this fellowship. And that is the one that has given his life so that your sins are forgiven. And he is the one that we bow to and serve. And not our own needs and not our own desires and not our own beliefs of what is right and wrong in a church. It is Christ. And if we're not seeking him out in his word and seeking him out in prayer, we have not done a thing to be a church. So this me-focused attitude, attitude brings about seeds of arguments that happen. And they're usually whispered around here, there. But they're heard by the, enough people to where people just stay away. 
See, discerning people, when they begin to experience that in a church, realize that God's nowhere in it, and they leave. That's what a me-focused existence in a church means. Worst of all, the me-focused life in a church creates silence in the mouths of the very ones that are supposed to be declaring the good news. You hear this? He teaches them this, and they just sit there dumbfounded, don't know what to say and scared to say anything. What if I say the wrong thing and it doesn't make me great? There's a problem that exists when we are so worried about what it might mean for me to speak the gospel to someone else and they think poorly of me because of it. Or that theological issues, issues of doctrine cause a church to just keep its mouth shut. Let me tell you what God's doing. God's turning the fire up outside of churches. Have you noticed that? Has anybody here noticed that the, that the world is more bold and vocal about who they believe the church is and who Christ is and what the church should say and not say and what the church should believe and not believe? <laughs> and you know what? The shape of the church that we have today where we're still trying to figure out who we are with Christ is not going to have a word to say to any of that. And there won't be a church in 50 years. Because the church is spoken into the world. The Word of God is spoken into the world by a church that boldly goes with the spirit and love of Jesus to bring salvation and the good news to people. But you have a generation that is coming up right now Half of them in the church don't even believe you're supposed to share Jesus. They think it's offensive to others if you do so. So if you think they've won, they've half won. And if we continue to be silent, and if we continue to let the inner focus of who we are keep us silent, then Satan's done double duty. It also drives us, this me-focused attitude drives us to define what proper ministry is. That's what John was doing in this. Hey, Jesus, we saw this guy over there, and he's actually doing something. (laughs) We couldn't get it done, but this guy's actually doing something, but he's not one of us, so shut him down. You ever heard that before? We try to define what ministry means to us rather than just allowing the love of Jesus to function. That's what was happening with this one guy. He wasn't even, look, these disciples, John and the others, they had the greatest gift in the world. They sat down with Jesus and heard his words. They were in his presence. They saw everything that he did. They experienced his love firsthand. This guy, man, evidently he saw something that Jesus did or heard something and he was compelled to act in the name of Jesus. And man, it had results. And John couldn't stand for it because he wasn't one of them. So 
See, when it's not about us, then we will dare to even stop good ministry that's going on because it's not of benefit to me. And it's not going to be done the way that I want to do it. It doesn't fit the mold. It doesn't fit my paradigm. So let's not do it. This happens in churches all the time. You get a few people together and they say, we don't want to do that. And so they convince everybody not to do it. And guess what? Nothing gets done. And the Word of God, and the word of God is, is silenced. And we're going about our way because we're hanging out with Jesus over at the church house. When we begin to force people to experience what God is doing on our terms, then we've made Him so small, we'll barely find Him when we look. Personal ambition also blinds us to the true greatness as exemplified by Jesus. They completely missed that the Son of Man that Jesus is talking about is the one that had come to serve them. They wouldn't miss it later. This whole episode is on their way to Jerusalem. He's halfway there. And of course, we know what happens when he gets there. But of course, the favorite part of, of our story when he gets there, mine anyway, is when he makes it crystal clear what this is all about. When he dresses himself down naked, puts a towel around his waist, and bends over on his knees and begins to wash the dirty feet of those who had been crowing about how great they were. They had missed it. They had missed it to the point to where they didn't understand just what Jesus was going to do for them. And what they meant to him. <clears throat> it's not the fact that we're to serve others. It's the fact that the ones that we serve mean so much to us. And that's what was missing. Do you hear what Jesus says in that? you hear where we come to this Jesus-focused thing? If we're Jesus-focused, being a servant comes naturally when we see others through Jesus' eyes. You don't have to try to be a servant. You don't have to go train to be a servant. You don't have to go find something to do to be a servant. A servant doesn't do. A servant is. You can't, you can't just say, oh, I'm going to go do this and that and that, and then at the end of the day, well, I serve somebody. No, that's a lie. All you've done is do a bunch of stuff. You're not a servant. A servant looks at someone and with the love and heart of Jesus bears their soul upon theirs to carry them. You can't do that without loving somebody. That's why Jesus said over and over again, you got to love one another. you got to love your enemies because if you don't love your enemies, this word that I've given you to share is never going to make it anywhere. It's never going to make it anywhere. Being a servant comes naturally when we see people through Jesus' eyes. When we see people as ready for his love and the good news. You see when he talks about when he puts a little child there, this lowly child that had no standing in, in society at all. Shouldn't even been there. There's another account for this where the disciples say, shoot, shoot them kids out of here. They don't even need to be close to here. 
And Jesus is saying, look, when you, when you get to a lowly person like this child, and you put your arms around them, and you're loving them, you're doing that to me. That's what he says. So if we're willing to just run past people that need the love of Jesus, then we're just running right past him too. Think of the times you miss him because you're not willing to say, I'm willing to put myself behind and I'm willing to love because that's Jesus there. So the person that you think hasn't done anything in life to deserve the love of Jesus, you're right, they haven't. None of us have. They have they've messed up every opportunity they've had. You, sometimes we know people well too often. They've messed up every opportunity. They've been ugly. They've been mean, vindictive. They've been all these things that are ungodly. And Jesus says, that's right. That's the ones I want you to put your arms around because they need my love. And I put you here to serve them. That's why you're here. If you want to be great. But if you want to be mediocre, you ain't got to do any of that. Just be mediocre. And there's a day coming... Revelation 3 says, when he'll just spew you out of his mouth and that'll be the end of it. Because you will have been lukewarm and worth nothing to him. Women that live on the street and use drugs and sell their bodies to survive need an embrace from a church that loves them and wants to serve them. I got brothers and sisters in this room right now who have struggled with alcohol and drugs. And you know what they need from you? They don't need any theology. They don't need any doctrine. They don't need any, well, come to this or come to that. You know what they need from you? They need a servant's heart at their feet, loving them and embracing them and showing them Jesus. Each and every day. You know what you get out of that? A life well lived. A life well lived. When we live a Jesus-focused life, we even approach people as servants. You're looking for a way to serve up to them the love of God through Christ. That's what you're looking for. You're not looking for what you can get for them. You're not looking for any other ulterior motive. The motive is this person, hey, they may even be a believer. They need more of Jesus. We all need more of him. They need some encouragement today. I'm going to give it to them. Man, they've, they've never experienced Christ's love in a real and tangible way. I'm going to give it to them. This is all I got to give. I don't have anything else worth giving than this. So we approach people and we welcome them into our lives with the unapologetic reason of saying, of doing that I am going to give you the love of Jesus today. You don't have to apologize. You never have to apologize for that. <laughs> they may not even believe in Jesus and they're not going to make you apologize for trying to show him his love to, to them. We become his representatives in just the same way that he gathers up this little boy in his arms this little child in his arms.
And then he goes on to share with us, this isn't just a relationship that you share with this person and me. This isn't just something going on between you and them. He says, you're, you're actually, it's God that you're welcoming as you do that. There's a cosmic thing going on in this person's life, and you should expect it. You should never expect God to take a moment where you've, where you've done all that he's asked you to do as his servant to offer love, where something cosmic does not happen in that other person's life. You say, well, I don't ever get to see that. I'm not with them long enough. Build a relationship with people. Hang on to them. The most precious thing in the world you will ever have is another person to hang on to, especially with the love of God. There's no substitute for that. God places a person right there in front of you. And it's the greatest gift he can give you because he's already given his life for that person. They just don't know it. What a great thing to be able to show them. Look, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, if you'd wonder what this is all about, I hope I'm giving you a pretty good taste of what this is all about. But if you want to know him, and if you want the best that you can get from Jesus and his church, just come as a child. Just come ready to receive love. That's all a child does. I just, just come saying, you know what? I'm tired of all this fighting. I'm tired of all the struggle in my life. I'm tired of trying to maintain all. Just, just, I just want to be loved. There's two motivators in your life that you've probably forgotten about by now but never run dry. You want to be known and you want to be loved. Church, we are here to know and to love those who don't know Jesus. That's why we're here. It goes on and he describes how we're to live life in Jesus' name. That's what this one solo person was doing as he was, as he was working out his life, offering his life in Jesus' name and, and, and casting out demons, confronting evil face on in the name of Jesus and his life was defeating it. Serving the loveless in Jesus' name is a guarantee. Listen to this. If you are serving people that are lacking the love of Jesus, it is, there is, a, it is a almost guarantee that you will never displease him in that. That's what Jesus means when he says, he says, don't stop him. Because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. Why is that so? <clears throat> How could you? How could you do something in the name of Jesus and it accomplish such remarkable things and then turn around and say, oh, I'm not so sure about that guy. No, the more that you live in Jesus' name and the more that you confront the evil that is out there in Jesus' name, the, it, is, it is highly unlikely that you're ever going to decide to go and do something that is going to disparage His name. All that your life will want to be about is bringing about wholeness and healing to others. You'll never, you'll never offer negative testimony about Him. And believe me, we can do that every day just by the posture we take, the look on our face, the words that we use, the way that we talk about others, the way that we treat others, 
The way that we just dismiss anybody in this world because of who they are. We've given a negative testimony about who Jesus is in our life. You never have to worry about that when you're living by his name each and every day. And then the last thing that I want to point out about this living a Jesus-focused life is that a loving servant always produces loving service from others. Do you see this at the end of this? It's beautiful. It says, whoever gives you even a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to me or belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. When you... When you offer Christ to others and they give just a little bit back, Jesus saying that, is a, that door is wide open for them. Look at what you've done. You give, you receive, and the door is wide open for them to never lose their reward. Today we go to this table. We go to this table understanding and knowing that when Jesus offered it on that night that he was betrayed, that he was saying to his disciples in a, in a way that we could hold and touch ourselves for the rest of our lives, for all of, for all of creation, for all of time. He says, this is what I'm about to do on the cross. You don't know it yet. You don't know what all that it means. But if you want to know what service is, this is it. He says, I'm offering my body to be broken as the blessed Lamb of God to cleanse you of your sins. I'm offering my blood poured out for you that will cover you and wash you anew before God so that all he sees is a life that's been washed clean. And he says, if you follow me, if you take up your cross daily and follow me, then you will quickly learn that you are breaking your body. You will give everything for another to know the one who sent me so that they can give their life to him. You will symbolically spill your blood so that they may know the one who sent me and they may give their life to him because the glory of the father is that he not lose one so that all men may glorify his name all men will one day some will be with him eternally in heaven after that and some will not be with him eternally. I don't want to stand before God and hear him say, what about Jim that I placed before you? That you look past like he was something, nothing. That I gave him to you to bring to me. I gave you the gift that I wanted brought to me. And you never even looked him in the eye. You weren't a servant. 
We celebrate this today. We celebrate what Christ has done. People, if, if all he's done is keep you from going to hell when you die, he hasn't done a thing. But if what he has done in your heart is to make you a servant of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to offer that to men and women to believe in Jesus, then he's done a remarkable thing. Let's pray together.